well, welcome everyone. Uh, I used to do uh, youth ministry for a long time, so I, I would preach to five kids on a couch, so this is a pretty good week. So uh, no worries about that. We're just rejoicing with the Lord for uh, Argentina's victory today. Hey, if you guys have, uh, if you have Bibles, turn to 1 John chapter 4. That's where we're going to be today. I know you guys are in a series on Advent, uh, which is incredible. So as we go through uh, this book, one of the most particular things that is going to be really, really interesting for us is to notice that John is this guy who grew up. John, if you could imagine, was the guy who got his mom to go to Jesus and say, hey, can me and my brother get the most honor out of all of the disciples? You can imagine he's a young man, pretty brush. His love language is probably physical touch because he was always leaning on Jesus. He was always asking a lot of questions. He was always the one who was right next to Jesus, kind of sitting there asking all the things. In fact, at Jesus' crucifixion, when Jesus is on the cross, he says to John, John, this is now your mother, and to Mary, he says, Mary, this is now your son. John is that kind of guy. He was always around. He was the clingy friends. But then he grows up. He grows up to be an elder in the church who looks at all of these different churches, and he's trying to encourage them. And the thing I love about John is John is not the most linear thinker. If you've ever read the Gospel of John or any of his letters, it kind of is like, uh, I make the joke sometimes, that John also wrote the Revelation and the revolutions, because all of his letters are just circles. They just keep going back and forth over the same topics, and he just adds in a new category and adds in a new category. And this is what we have here in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, is that John is going to throw to us this, this test of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And this test has to do with the love that we have for God and for one another. So here it goes, 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 10. Uh, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he have loved us, and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins." Uh, I was a young lad, I was 22 years old, got very excited about the fact that I was going to get married. So I uh, get really excited. My wife here was a flight attendant overseas in the Middle East, and uh, so she was living in Dubai, and I was in Canada. And so I thought to myself, as a flight attendant, wouldn't it be cool if I just arrived at one of the locations that she flew to, dropped a knee, popped the question, this would be a miraculous and beautiful love story. So I do what any good 22-year-old man does when they need money, and they go, Mom, I need money. And uh, I get my mom to buy me a ticket to uh, Japan. So I arrive in Tokyo, and I'm nervous as can be, and I'm just freaking out. And I'm going to all of these extents. One of the difficulties is that I'm supposed to be in Canada, but I'm in Japan, but she's in Dubai. I'm having to keep track of three different time zones, and I'm coming up with excuses like, I have mono, I'm not supposed to be there. Uh, it's the day of, I'm freaking out. I'm talking to all of these random, anyone who can speak English in, ja in Japan, I'm, I'm telling them about what's about to happen, and they're freaking out. I'm freaking out. We're all, this is like a reality TV show for all of us. We get to the place where I'm going to propose, and she's going to arrive. And I send her a text message. Now, here's one of the things that Apple did not figure out when they designed their phones. 
So I sent my now wife a text message because I knew that as soon as she got into Wi-Fi zone, it was going to show that it was red. And I can know that she's in Wi-Fi, she's read the text, I'll be able to kind of start and initiate. So I sent her a text and I uh, said, hey, how are you doing? And I'm waiting for that to go red. And I'm talking to my friend Anna as well. And Anna says, hey, have you gotten to the hotel yet? Which is where we were going to do this proposal. It's going to be nice and beautiful. And, uh, and I'm responding back to Anna, I think. But what happens is when a notification pops on your phone and you click it, it goes to the last conversation that was opened, not to the notification that you clicked. And so I text my now wife, no, I'm waiting at the hotel for her to show up so that I can propose. <laughs> and I text this to her. And in that moment of panic, you can imagine, I've flown all of these miles, I've had all of these plans, I've done all of these things, and it's all just gone down the drain. So I do, I, I have some critical thinking moments, she hasn't read it yet, and I go, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to spend the next four minutes and just type different letters in the text conversation. And I probably texted about 300 text messages so that when she grabbed her phone, she would go, what is going on? And would never think to go all the way to the top to see that initial text. Quick thinking, right? This is pretty genius. And so it all happens. She gets down and, and, and uh, I get down on one knee. She doesn't even let me say the things that I, I planned to say because she was just so excited to be uh, with this. And, uh, and it was a crazy moment. Why do I share all this? In fact, why did I go to all of the lengths that I did? To go to Japan, drop one knee, propose to a girl from the other side of the world, why would I go and do all of these things? Because of one singular word, and that word is love. So human love, and the way that we talk about love, seems to be this deep, intense feeling that we have for another person. It's a great interest or a pleasure in something. But this isn't the kind of love that John speaks about. Listen to these words again. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. See, there's two kinds of love that is spoken about. One of them is the kind of person who goes up to someone and goes, Do you love me? Yes. Okay, tell me that you love me again. Okay, tell me that you love me again. And love in modern culture has been seen, if you give a visual image, more like a black hole. It just takes in all of this affection, all of this pleasure, all of this emotion, and the love is for me. I'm the one who takes all of this in, and I'm the one who gains from it. But the other image that John is more trying to say is love is not like uh, a black hole. Love is more like a cell where it can divide and multiply itself without ever losing what it truly is. The love that John is talking about is this love called agape. Agape is the love born not out of a feeling or emotion or out of pleasure, but born out of a decision. Agape is the result of a choice. It is not ignited by the loneliness or the godliness of the other. It is ignited by a decision. Agape is energized by an act of the will. It's a decision love. It's, it's the will to will the goodwill of the other, even when the other does not deserve it. Agape is the love with which God loves us. And let me tell you, that is really good news, that God's love towards you is not because he feels nice about you. 
That God's love towards you is not that he feels this intense pleasure or emotion towards you. That God's love towards you is intended to be based off of a decision and a choice. That is beautiful. If I'm in a marriage where my love to my wife is dependent on how I feel, I don't always feel great. I don't even, in fact, always feel loved. And you know what gives her strength in our relationship? That my emotion and my love towards her is not based on how I feel. It's based on a day where I made a vow that this will happen till I die. It's a decision. It's a moment. I had a youth pastor tell me when I was a young man, love the one you choose and choose the one that you love. Love the one you choose and choose the one that you love. This is based out of an act of the will. And so you and I, when we love, I love this, that John is saying, let us love one another. So what is our definition of love? Our definition of love is a settled purpose to act in a way for the flourishing of someone else regardless of their response. It's a settled purpose. It's an act of the will for the flourishing of another individual regardless of their response. And I love this. That God has so moved in such a way where he does the same thing. He, he, just, he just acts towards us. This is what this whole season is about. Is that God is the one who moved. God is the one who initiated. God is the one who took a step. God is the one who left. And he met us in our greatest moment of need and said, I don't have intense feelings or pleasures or emotions. I want you because I want you. Guys, let me give you a bit of a hint. If your wife ever comes up to you and says, why do you love me? Never give a response. <laughs> Never. In fact, all you should really say is, I love you because I love you. Israel asked that same question to God. And God said, I don't love you because you're the biggest of all of the nations. I don't even love you because you're the strongest of all of the nations. I love you because... I love you. And you want to know why that's so important? It's because if my wife comes up to me and says, why do you love me? And I go, oh, you make the best breakfasts. You are beautiful beyond imagine. You always say the most sweet things to me. This is why I love you. What happens when she burns the breakfast? How does she feel about how I feel about her? Or in old age when the beauty that she had begins to fade away. Imagine the anxiety of feeling, does my husband still feel the same way? Or the thought when things get a little bit heated and she says something that she regrets and does my husband still love me anymore? Do you get it? God's love is a love at a decision. And he says for us to do the same. And sometimes we don't feel up to it. Sometimes we don't feel like all of this God stuff or even God himself is something that I necessarily want. I love how one writer puts this. If you don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it's not because you have drunk deeply and are satisfied. It's because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world that your soul is stuffed with small things and there is no more room for the great. And I love this thing. No, no, I love this thing. No, no, I love this thing. I love this thing. And we forget about God all completely because we're too busy and too tired worshiping and satisfying the other gods in our life. 
We hear this language all the time where we say things like, man, what's the point of being Christian if I cannot? What's the use of being a Christian if I don't feel like? What's, what's the use of being a Christian if I don't get to? And whatever you fill in the blank with really shows you what you're living your life for. That we're using God in such a way to get the things that we want and we have made no room for the greatness of his glory in our life. But John, I love this. You want to know how I know that love is something that is made out of the will and not out of an emotion? Because for John, love is something that can be commanded to you. Love them. Love them. This isn't even an option. You have to. If you know who God is, love them. If this is an emotion, if this is a feeling, you can't command that. You can't just be in college and go, love me. Feel nice things about me. Right? That's not a thing. Or imagine parents going to your kids and just go, be happy. It's not something that you can just tell them to do. But for God, he's saying your love towards people is something that you get to decide on. And it's something that we get to decide on. Why? Because he decided first. He made the first move of love, which is why we're celebrating Christmas anyways. This love that God has for us leads us to a higher view of others and a better view of others than even for ourselves. It's a love that will leave us consent with the things that we have and not with what other people possess. It's a love that leads us to mercy and justice. It leads us to care for the poor, and it leads us to respect all around us. This love is something not that it's just made by human beings. It is, a, it is a communal act that we get to share and have fellowship with God in what he initiates and what we get to join in on. Love. And John continues in a beautiful way. He says this, Anyone who does not love does not know God because, why? God is love. One writer, his name is John Stott, he says that this is the most comprehensive and sublime of all biblical affirmations about God's being. Because what God does, God doesn't just love like God rules. It's everything that God does is a loving action. Everything that God does, you have to filter through the idea that he is love. God does not do love. God is love and acts from his very being. And so for us, when we look at God, we see him in such a way where we know this is his default. Which is why when times are difficult, when times are, are suffering, and Christmas is definitely one of those seasons. I heard somebody say that Christmas... In fact, the holidays is kind of just like a magnifying glass of your whole year. If you've had a really bad year, the holidays decide to, to multiply that feeling inside of you. If you've had a great year, the holidays multiply the joy within your own soul. And the best moment of what the Advent season is telling us, the incarnation of Jesus is telling us, is that when we suffer, he comes to us. He's always been that way. Think of the cloud or the pillar of fire with Israel. God was with them. Think of the tent or the tabernacle. God was with them. Think of the temple in the midst of suffering. God was with them. 
And all of those things are just pointing to the idea that he would show up in flesh, God, in flesh, to say, I am with you. And I'm not even with you in a stage that would say, hey, let me tag along and be the person that encourages you. Let me be the person who took what you could not take. Let me be the person to do what you could not do. Let me be the person who could be what you could not be in order that you gain the relationship with the Father that I have. And once you realize this, that he did everything for us, that he is love, then there's those moments of deep and dreaded pain in our life where you could affirm to yourself, God, I, I don't understand your hands, but I do know your heart. To know him to have the kind of relationship that pushes you in a way that just blows you away from this one singular, unique human being who did everything for us. Look at verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him, that he is like uniquely put here to be the kind of person that just throws away these false images of what we have in our minds. That any way that you want to think about God cannot be seen as God until you see Jesus. Jesus is the very image of who God is. If you want the summary of who God is, it's Jesus. And the beauty of this moment is that it confronts all of the things in our life. Listen to me really clearly. Every sin you commit is a lie that you believe. Every sin that you commit is a lie that you believe. And the image of God coming in flesh, in Jesus, to show the world is to confront all of those lies and to show you what truth is very much like. Truth in a human being. Truth putting on flesh. Truth acting in the world. Truth having relationships. Truth living perfectly. Truth dying on a cross. And truth resurrecting. The right way to do this, the right way to live our lives, we see this in him and he confronts the very lies that we believe because every sin that we commit is a lie that we believe. This love that he shows is confronting a false view of God. And if we have a false view of God, then we're going to be confronted with this truth that we've bought into a lie. And we must understand for every single one of us that love is completely dominating our lives. For some people, it's the loss of love that makes us not want to live anymore. It's the hope and the certainty of love that makes us want to keep going. When you're experiencing and giving love, you are the most human. And when you're not, you feel like an animal or a machine going through the motions of life and not really knowing what you're here for. Love defines us. I love this, especially when we come into church settings. What's the greatest measure of a Christian maturity? What's the greatest measure of Christian maturity? For some of us, we think, man, it is, it, it's, it's knowing the most amount of people and having a really great network or a really great community. Is that the measure of maturity in a Christian? Maybe it's knowing all of the Bible verses and having this memorized to a T. 
That's the, the maturity and the measure of maturity for a Christian. Maybe it's, it's knowing all of your theology and reading all of the books. That's the measure of the maturity of a Christian. No. The measure of the maturity in a Christian is how you love. The world will know you by your great theology. The world will know you by your love. It's the greatest test of maturity of who you really are and where you really fit into what God is trying to do within your soul. This is not the world that we live in. The world that we live in is about the individual self. It's about me, it's about what I want, it's about what I want to do, where I want to go, what music I listen to. I love, uh, somebody was making this joke about the, the phone. I think it's so funny that we have such unrealistic expectations on the phone and the phone manufacturers, right? We go to the, imagine like 30 years ago, this is one comedian, he makes a joke and he says, it'd be so unusual for 30 years ago, you say, hey, take a picture, and you pulled out your phone. 30 years ago, that would have been like, that's impossible. You'd just be, <laughs> right? Like, how does this take a, a picture? And we look at our phone and we say, you know what I want on this? I, I want to be able to connect with every human being on the planet. And the manufacturers go, sure, let's do that. I want to be able to take pictures to the fact that I don't have to buy a camera. Okay, manufacturers put that in there. I want music on my phone. Okay. No, no, no. I want, like, all of my music. Okay? No, no. I want all music from all time to be accessible on my phone. I want every movie ever made to be accessible on my phone. Don't you realize that we have these social media pages that are dedicated to alters of ourselves? 60 years ago, my great-great-grandfather, if I told him, hey, I'm going to build a website, I'm going to build a space that is dedicated to me, and I'm going to be the curator of that space, he would look at me and probably say, that seems pretty arrogant. And yet the whole world curates a space dedicated to themselves, and I'm the one who creates that museum of my own soul, and I get to show it to the world in whatever way I want. Life seems to be about me. We live in a society that because of this condition, all values are relative. We might say things like, live your own truth. All relationships are transactional. Think about your interactions with the cashier or the Uber driver. Not even looking them in the eye because you're looking at your phone. That all identities are fragile. That any person's objection of me will destroy me and how I think about myself. And all supposed sources of fulfillment are disappointing. This is the world that you and I live in. And the incarnation of God gives us another vision. Look at this in verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You know that other places in the Bible, the language that God uses of us is not the nicest sometimes. 
that while we were still sinners, that while we were the enemies of God, it's kind of intense language at times, but it's a really great visual image of the people in your life that maybe you don't really like. I love this one writer, her name is Dorothy Day. This is what she writes. And I, I need you to sit on this. I really only love God as much as I love the person I love the least. I only love God as much as I love the person that I love the least. What did God do for the enemy? The one on the opposite side of the battlefield. What did he do for them? Sacrifice his very son for those people. And you and I can't even get over somebody cutting us off in traffic. Or going too slow, maybe, when the snow goes. Or getting mad at the city for not being quick on plowing the roads. I know that was me this morning. Maybe we only love God as much as we love the people that we love the least. But for God, what he did was miraculous. He showed us a statement of his truth within himself by sending his son to the cross and saying, the image that I want you to remember about me is this moment. It's me and my greatest suffering. Not me and my greatest glory, sitting on a throne with a thousand angels around me. No, the moment I want you to realize who I really am is my son naked, hanging on a cross, taking on the sins of his people on himself. It's mind-blowing. As one writer says, the son suffers in his love, being forsaken by the father as he dies. The father suffers in his love, the grief, the grief of the death of his son. It is the unconditioned and boundless love which proceeds from grief of the father and the dying son and reaches forsaken men in order to create in them the possibility and the force of new life. Sometimes we only think within the, the triune God that God has lost his, lost his son. And we don't realize that the son has also lost his father. And in that grief within God, humanity now has a chance. That man has sinned. But God has suffered. Why does he do that? You know, sometimes we make these weird, like, assessments about God, and we are like, okay, it's a human being dying. That's, like, not that big of a moment. Haven't there been, like, a number of different courageous acts throughout history where someone will give their life on behalf of somebody else? Didn't God just do what any human being could do? Doesn't that make sense? It's not that courageous. Other people, I would give my life for my wife. Like, what's the big deal? Maybe you would have that argument. What God does on the cross is completely different from what one person does in a, in a feat of courage through their soul. If you believe theologically that God is this, is this really fancy term, omniscient, which means he knows all things, that means that not every minute But every second, every day, every week, every month, every year, every decade, every century, every millennia, Jesus was walking down this moment and did not hesitate. 
he knew the greatest suffering he would ever feel was in front of him, and he kept going towards it. Why? Well, the great theological answer would be because he was doing it for the glory of his father. Wasn't he already kind of doing that? What's the deal? It's the one thing that he didn't have and he wanted back. You. A decisive love of God to send his son to have you back. Some of us in this room don't value our own lives. We don't even value ourselves. Some of us have a really difficult idea of even making a decision for the flourishing of our own souls at times. It's very easy to determine your value. If I go to a a corner store and I walk up to the cashier and I have a bag of chips and I say, hey, what's the value of the chips? They're going to say, well, it's the cost. It's $1.50. The value is connected to the cost. The value is connected to the cost. What's the cost for you? What's the cost? God. Hanging on a cross was the cost. So what's the value? Immeasurable. Infinite. There is nothing more valuable than God saying, I will die for these people. You cannot look at yourself and say, I have no value. It's an infinite amount of value because there's an infinite amount of cost. God humbled himself to the point of a servant where he took on flesh, lived the lives that we had, was betrayed by his friends, was beaten by his enemies, was crucified by his oppressors. How would you ever imagined that God, with all that knowledge, looked at you and said, I know you. I know you more than you know you. In fact, I know all the sins that you have committing, you are committing, and you will commit. And I still want you anyways. That's a beautiful kind of love. And I love the fact that the Bible talks about this kind of issue of sanctification is the big fancy word that we use basically means that you as a human being who follow Jesus are progressing to more and more in the image of Jesus. And I think it's a beautiful image. Uh, I don't know about you, if any of you guys liked school or not. There's always a process in writing a paper for school, which now no longer has to happen because we all have AI. But in writing a paper, you'd be told by your English teacher to go and do a, a first draft or a rough draft. You're just kind of throwing your thoughts onto a page, not a whole lot of like actual structure. It's chaotic. It's wild. It's just like the first fruits of hopefully what your paper is going to be. And I think it's a helpful image for us to realize that the place that we are now in our lives might not be where we want to be. And there's this gap. There's this gap between who I am and who I want to be. And if we look forward, we get frustrated. We get angry as can be. 
Why have I not gotten here? Why have I not gotten to this place of holiness or sanctification? Why am I keep making these mistakes? We get angry and we get frustrated. And it's like in these moments that we, especially with Advent, remembering, it's like God is trying to say to us for a moment, instead of looking forward, maybe you should look back. Because the gap of who you are and who you are becoming is a lot smaller than the gap from who you are and who you were before I showed up in your life. And the reason why I love this paper illustration is because it reminds us that we are just rough drafts of the people who we are becoming. And whose hand is on the pen? Not us. God is the one who works and wills. God is the one who does this. Why? Because he has made the choice to love. And he is the finisher. He is the author of our faith. God showed up. He showed up. Over and over and over again. And his body was broken on a cross for you and I. For us to remember that moment. We are going to take communion all together.